Let's turn to the Word of God this morning. Uh, Please turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. I'm going to start a new series. Uh, I did a teaching a week ago Saturday for our leaders here at the church. It's about the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues, and I got so much feedback from the leaders. They said, you know, could you teach that on a Sunday morning? So that's what I'm about to do. We're going to go into a three or four week week series on the seven deadly sins and the seven virtues. So let's ask God to help us. Father, would you show us, teach us, illuminate your word to come into our hearts and minds so that we would overcome sin and live a virtuous life? Show us, Jesus, how to do this in the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So seven deadly sins and seven virtues. Let me read to you from Romans chapter 8. We're starting at verses 6 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind that is set on the spirit of life is peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because of an indwelling Holy Spirit or spirit of holiness that we now have, we now have the ability to choose not to sin. Now there are some folks who think, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm done with it. Paul would tell us and and emphatically that there's a war going on in your mind between your flesh and the functions and desires of your body and your inner man who delights in the law of God's Spirit. And so that war, that wrestling is in your mind. And if you have your mind renewed, you can choose not to sin because the power of God that overcame death is the same power in you to overcome sin. That's the theology of Paul. And he says, so if you put your flesh to concentrate on the things of the flesh, you're going to reap corruption and death. But if you set your heart on the things of the Holy Spirit, you'll reap life and you'll reap peace. So that's the concept of these seven deadly sins and the seven virtues. They oppose each other. And if we would work towards those virtues, we'll overcome those sins. Paul says this in Galatians 6, 8, whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now I want you to consider that. What is your flesh? It's this container you live in, right? It includes your mind, your thought life, and your body, your your drives, your desires. So your flesh is in you. It's here. It's contained in you. And so if we sow to these earthly temporal things, if we sow to our selfish desires and self-centeredness, we're going to reap what from that? Death, self. This thing's contaminated. It's unto death. But if we sow to the Spirit, we're going to reap what? eternal life but where's the spirit dwell here i want you to consider this passage is not just talking about eternal life in the great by and by but if the spirit of god dwells in me now so does eternal life dwell in me now anybody with me so that zoe that eternal life that life power that that is of god is in me now he's not just talking that you're going to reap eternal life but you're going to reap the benefits of that eternal life now 
the love, the joy, the peace of God's nature is available to me now. Not just, well, get by till you can get to heaven. Someday, 80 and out. Then I'll walk on streets and go this and that. Jesus has more than that for you now. Amen? And, and so there is a sowing and reaping because the contrast wouldn't work concerning the, the sowing and reaping to the flesh or to the spirit, to the flesh of the spirit. The, the response would be of the flesh, which doesn't amount to much, or of the heaven later. Do You see, it doesn't, of course you're going to heaven, but I'm talking about the response now. If you sow to the flesh, you'll reap of the flesh. Your decisions, your choices, you'll immediately reap uh, and reek of those things. Uh, but if I sow to the Spirit, I'm going to get a gratification, an immediate response of the Spirit. And it'll come from the eternal presence of His own nature that I can have the joy of the Spirit right now. I've conquered sin. I mean, some of us need to rejoice that uh, there was something that popped up on my, com- my computer and I said, no! And I clicked it off. I wouldn't look. And I got the joy of the Lord because I was obedient. I'm reaping of the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? You can reap now of these things. And so we're in a struggle between sin and what is pure. (coughs) Let me show you what these sins are. Just about 380 A.D., a monk named Evagrius of Pontus (coughs) drew up a list of eight offenses and wicked human passions. Anybody got a cough drop? Throw it this way, will you please? A little scratchy throat this morning. Thank you. So this guy, this monk, Evagrius of Pontus, Evagrius the Solitary, was contemplating the condition of man. And in his condition, he realized that there are sins of the flesh that are common to all of us that seem to repeat all the time. He, he chose eight of them, and alongside of that, he began to see virtues that mirrored those things that Christ has given us by his Spirit to overcome them. Now, Pope Gregory the Great came along in about the 6th century, 580-some A.D., <clears throat> and produced a list that we see today. And he ranked them from the least to the worst, and, and he based them on the degrees of how much they offend the love of God. And that's an interesting insight, because when you couple this with uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us the virtues that Christ is giving us to overcome the sins of the flesh. And so that's what these monks were meditating on. <clears throat> and, and since they did all the work, we can reap from that and learn from them. Amen? It's one of the great things about Christian history. Uh, Folks, I know you like reading the most contemporary books by the latest uh, rock stars of Christian doctrine, but could I tell you, would you please go back into church history and would you read the depth and the deep riches of those saints who spent their lives studying the depths of theology instead of the, the, the Christianese lightweight stuff that's out there today? Okay, I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff is so lightweight. It's time for the church to go back to the church fathers and get into some depth 
of understanding of prayer and, and how to overcome the works of flesh. Centuries of Christians who spent their lives working on this. Well, they developed these virtues and a list of these seven deadly sins. So let me help you discover what they are. The seven deadly sins that offend the love of God from least to worst is lust at the low end of things. That's a problem uh, easily. Gluttony, greed, sloth, laziness in other words, anger, envy, and the worst is what? Pride. Now these are seven deadly sins that work in conjunction with each other. They overlap each other. They are sly and slick to move in and out of us. The enemy knows that they're within the flesh. He taps those buttons all day long. How many of you know that? When you're being tempted by the enemy, he's working on these areas of your flesh. And, and what they did is they configured them into seven deadly sins. <clears throat> offending the love of God, lust offending the love of God because making it so base and carnal, uh, pride elevating ourselves above God, making us, us offend the love of God by thinking we're so all that important. Now, on the opposite end, but, but uh, from each particular sin are the seven virtues. So the opposite from lust is to have a heart of purity. The, the other spectrum end from gluttony is to have self-control. From greed is to have charity. From sloth is to be diligent. From anger is to be patient with others. From envy is to have kindness. And from pride to have humility. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at these virtues and looking at these sins on how to overcome them, how to defeat them. This should apply to all of us. It's the human drama, right? This is what makes your family interesting. Hey man, this stuff makes good TV. I'm serious. It, it, it again, if you have all seven of these characteristics, you've got a hit show on your hand for example, Gilligan's Island. Hey. Sherwood Schwartz is the guy that wrote Gilligan's Island. <clears throat> and in a book he wrote many years after the, the show, he said that he patterned every character after the seven deadly sins. So the reason we enjoyed watching Gilligan's Island, pick a particular sin. Some of you were stuck on ginger. <laughs> Didn't it frustrate you like crazy that these people could not get off an island? They could make radios to reach NASA and they couldn't get off that stinking island? They had a hole in a boat. They made cars, huts, but they couldn't patch a hole in a boat that was three by four? And there's some reality to this, because with these seven deadly sins, you can't get along. You can't figure it out. Do you remember every time that they'd find a way to get off, Gilligan, Mr. Sloth, was sleeping and missed the opportunity? Or, or uh, the captain, right? He, he got Skipper, sorry, Skipper. 
Uh, Skipper got so mad that he'd end up breaking something, or the professor in all of his pride missed an opportunity. So, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, the professor was full of pride. Mr. Howell obviously was covetousness, wasn't he? Ginger was lust. Mrs. Howell was gluttony. She was all about her luggage and everything she had. The skipper was always angry, and Marianne envied Ginger. And, uh, and of course, Gilligan was full of sloth, wasn't he? These are the same things that you'll see in the nation of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think it took Israel 40 years to get through a desert? It was an 11-day tour. This was a three-hour tour. (laughs) 11 days they could have gotten from the Red Sea to the Promised Land. Why did they wander for 40 years? Seven deadly sins. God had had to break those things. Pride, gluttony. They wanted more of everything. It's just a real problem. Thank you, sir. And, and so you see this in throughout Scripture. If any of them would have worked towards the virtues, maybe this crew could have gotten off this island. Then what would you have done with your reruns? But it starts early. We need to teach our kids early. Because SpongeBob, as a matter of fact, each character is, is written off of the seven deadly sins. In the first season one on the DVD, the the authors say that they wrote Spongebob and its characters based on the seven deadly sins. Isn't that interesting? Again, a human drama. We all relate to it. And it fits so easily to understand. Now, if some of you don't have kids or haven't had kids in a while, you've lost out on Spongebob. (laughs) Was one uh, one of my favorite shows that we watched with the kids. Just because this illustrates the seven deadly sins doesn't mean that they're bad to watch. It's just illustrating the human condition. In this sense, the under the sea condition. Thank you, bro. So some of you are dying to know uh, the different sins. Patrick is sloth. Obviously, he's the starfish that lives under a rock. Squigward is wrath. He's always mad. Mr. Krabs is very greedy. He's always trying to make more money. And Plankton, that little guy, you know, he always wants the secret recipe. And Gary, the snail, is always hungry. He's eaten SpongeBob's house and everything else. Sandy, the squirrel who lives underwater, is full of pride. She's from Texas. Most people from Texas, you got that problem. (laughs) SpongeBob is lust. But what kind of lust with SpongeBob? It's not a sexual lust. You know you can have lust that's not sexual. It's a desire for self-gratification and And that can come in all sorts of forms. And again, it can cross over into gluttony. It can cross over into pride. Each of these things can morph into the other, but it's a very potent and powerful thing. And so adventure after adventure with SpongeBob, we see these seven deadly sins interacting. It doesn't stop there. Again, human drama. And of course, some of you prefer Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So, uh, I don't know if you prefer the uh, older movie with Gene Wilder or the newer movie that was recently released. Um, The music's much better in the newer one, I think, personally. Um, Interesting drama, isn't it? 
And based on this drama, and the, and the writer of the book, this is based on a book written by Robert Dahl, and he himself said he uh, characterized these characters after the seven deadly sins. And so you've got Augustus Gloop, who is gluttonous. You've got uh, Veruca Salt. You remember her. She always wanted more. Uh, greedy. She wanted the golden goose. Violet Beauregard. Pride. Always bo- bo- boasting. Mike TV. You remember Mike TV? He's sloth. All he wanted to do was watch TV. Grandpa Joe was envy. He was envious of Willy Wonka, the factory, and, and wanting things. And uh, Wonka himself was full of anger and wrath, always uh, criticizing and, and punishing everybody for their flaws. And then last of all is Charlie, and Charlie had an, a lust issue. Again, not a sexual issue, but he, he really had to have what he didn't have. And I find it interesting that in these movies and in these shows, we all find ourselves, don't we? We all find these seven deadly sins. And what we're going to do over the next number of weeks is, I want you to evaluate your heart. I I think actually in worship it began. God set over us this morning this, this spirit that was searching in us. And we have got to get a hold of this thing because these seven deadly sins are found in this flesh. You carry them as you do your DNA, your blood, and so forth. They were found in the fall. Now we can overcome them, as we said, according to Scripture, if we will sow to the Spirit. God had to put something in us that's greater than us. I'm going to say that again. God put something in us that is greater than us. It is the power of His Spirit of holiness, which will give you the virtues to overcome these sins. And so Israel never had that. How many of you know that Israel always lived to the flesh? They didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the best they could do was take the Word of God and His promises, write them on their forehead and strap it to their forehead, strap straps around their hands to remember them, put it on their doorpost, a word so that they could touch it, recite prayers as often as they could. Why were they doing that? To remember. To overcome these issues that they had to grapple with every day. And we, we say, oh, how come Israel kept failing? They didn't have an indwelling spirit of holiness. I have to ask the question, how come we do? We've got more than they ever had. They, when they sinned, God would punish them and and send an army or something else to deal with them. When we sin, it's immediate. The Holy Spirit convicts us and says, shape up now. But even better than that, the Holy Spirit, before we fall into sin, says, don't do it. So we've got to get our act together or we're going to look like Gilligan's Island to this world out there or we're going to look like Spongebob or Willy Wonka. And that's what the church has become to this world, irrelevant reruns of a bygone era. God forbid that we would be Willy Wonka. So what we're going to look at today is the first issue And then the next couple of weeks, we'll look at two per Sunday. This 
first issue that we're going to deal with, as, as our monks uh, Gregory the Great said, this is the, the lowest level of offense to the love of God, and it starts with lust. But if we combat it with a pure heart, we can deal with it. In fact, that's what the issue is here. Now let's define lust. Lust is an inordinate craving for the pleasures of the body. Now you're going to be, it's, it's interesting that in Scripture you're going to see that there are times when we can lust in a good way. When they looked at Jesus after he had made a whip and cleansed out the temple and drove out the money changers, they remembered the verse, thy zeal has eaten up your heart for the house of God. There is a lust or a zeal in Christ Jesus to honor his Father. Paul says, earnestly covet the greater gifts. That's have a desire, coveting, have an earnest coveting, have a lust for the greater gifts of God. You see, that's, that's a sense of I need the good things from God. Now, so that's a good thing. I would hope that there's a sense of desire, passionate desire in your marriage for your spouse. That would be healthy. That would be good. But it would be pure. And there's the difference. So the issue concerning lust is that it becomes sin when it is for the gratification of self versus the honoring of God. What does this all come down to? Very simple. A heart issue. What you're going to find out in these seven deadly sins and the seven virtues, everything is geared in this situation from your heart. It's the motivation. And that's what the Sermon of the Mount is all about. Heart motivation. Jesus takes us through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to illustrate to us what the kingdom will be like when the Spirit of God dwells in men. And that's a for now situation. We are the Sermon on the Mount. We are that city on a hill. We are that light. We are that salt. So everything he described in Matthew 5 through 7 is you and me, not Gilligan's Island. That's the kingdom. And he says this in Matthew 5, blessed are the what? Pure. Say it with me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? Pure in heart. Pure in heart. Some ten verses later, he says this, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her. Where? Where's the issue? Isn't it interesting you see this young man leaning down praying, right? That looks good. Now, let's tell the story. Is he leaning down and praying because his heart is pure before God, he couldn't take another step and said, God, I love you, you're glorious, and you're wonderful. Could be. Or could it be that he saw some woman about 10 feet in front of him, and he's like, oh man, alive, and he's getting on his knees saying, God, help me with this lust that's in my heart. Could go either way, couldn't it? See, we can't tell what's going on in the inside of our hearts. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. 
how to overcome lust is a heart issue. Now sometimes you're going to have to do some certain things to set boundaries and, and eliminate that issue. If there's something that makes you trip and fall, Paul talks about this. If you trip, make your brother stumble, you're becoming a stumbling block. Well, if there's something that causes you to stumble, get rid of it. If your eye offends you, what does he say? Pluck it out. Now that's a hyperbole. An exaggerated statement, okay? Half of you are going to come back with patches on your eyes. But as a statement is, if, if, if it'll save your soul and have you focus on the Lord, praise God. But God's got better than that. The better thing God has than you poking your eyes out is for you to have a pure heart. We can get all legalistic about this and we can say, strip your walls of every photo and picture, throw out every TV, never watch another movie, don't order any magazine, and when you walk into 7-Elevens, put a blindfold on. I'd like a milk, please. Or you can have a radical change of heart to no matter what is put before you, your heart is pure before God and you will not lust after those things. And that can happen. And that's what God has for us. But we're not pressing into the Holy Spirit enough. And so we want to get our hearts right. Now what's the problem? James puts it very specifically in James 1.14. Each person, how many? Who? Each, everybody, everybody in this house, each person is tempted. There's no sin in temptation. You're tempted all day long. Jesus was tempted. There's no sin in temptation. So that's not the problem. When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, now there's where lust begins to kindle. You're getting tickled. You're getting stimulated in one of those seven deadly diseases. We're talking about lust. And in this one, you're being enticed by your desire. When you give way to that desire, it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Many of you have experienced the death of relationships, the death of marriages, the death of of peace, the death of joy, because you followed after a lustful decision. Even in your mind and in your heart. How many of you know that enticing? I know it. I'm a guy. I know this. That enticing, uh, uh, sexual enticing of visual stimulation, right? And it entices, and you go, hmm, oh, what, ooh, what's that? Hmm. You've got a second to consider. And you go ahead, click. And then what comes all over you? The enemy. You're scum. You're a rotten scoundrel. I just brought death to my joy. I just brought death to the peace of my heart. I just brought death and conviction and condemnation. The devil loves to lure you in and then kill you with condemnation. Has anybody here ever experienced that besides me? Three of you. Oh, okay. <laughs> Twenty of you. Look, I have confidence. I already know I'm talking to all of you. <laughs> you can pretend, you know, put a tie on and look good. Forget about it. I already know. 
Yeah. Some of you are going like, hmm, not me. Mm. <laughs> Again, you can lust after all sorts of things. Handbags, shoes, hmm? houses. Right? You've got to work through all this stuff. So lust happens because it's in us. It's in us. And these are the buttons he pushes. But if I would tor- lean towards, as I said, the Sermon on the Mount, if we go towards that pure in heart, that heart issue, if I set my heart right, and if my heart is in love, passionately in love with Jesus... This is why we want to teach you to worship. This is why we want to teach you to express joy and love to Jesus. See, this is why. You say, oh, Pastor, I, I, don't, have to, you know, I don't have to sing songs. I don't have to worship. I don't have to say I love him. He knows I love him. Yeah, y- you know what? Ask your spouse. Does she, she need to hear or he need to hear you love him? Yeah. And so you have to cultivate a heart of passion for Jesus. We have to cultivate that. And, and, and when we have a heart cultivated for the passion of Jesus, we can then, by that virtue of purity to Him, a pure love for Him, we can overcome a lust from our flesh. Does that make sense to you? I want to bring it in a very practical sense to you. Now again, yes, there's very practical things. Get filters on your computers. Don't look at certain things. Never, don't rent movies that are R. You know, I mean, typical, very good boundaries for you. Just be safe. If there are... If there are uh, um, uh, passwords and stuff, um, put them on so you can't go past them. That's just being smart. But a pure heart will get you there. And so we need to overcome lust. And, and since we're, we're talking about human drama and, and TV shows, probably one of the wisest things based on, on uh, the Sermon on the Mount is nip it in the bud. Barney Fife, you've got to nip it in the bud. What does that mean, nip it in the bud? Half of you think it's nip it in the butt. It's bud. What does it mean, nip it in the bud? Consider a flower. Before it grows. Before it grows. How many of you had that weed between your fence that you thought, yeah, I'll get it sometime, and now it's a tree? <laughs> that happened to me in my neighbor's backyard. It is. I saw this little thing. I said, like, i got to go over there, but I shouldn't jump in his yard. And I never did. And now it's a tree ruining everything over in my yard. You've been there, haven't you? But if I would have nipped it in the bud, imagine how many trees are growing in us. How many relationships? How many wrong things have grown because we didn't nip it in the bud? And it's a heart issue. It's a purity issue. Now, let me give you an example so you'll understand where we're going with this. How do we have virtue in an ungodly age? I'm going to share with you the book of Daniel. Genius. Daniel nipped it in the bud right at the beginning. And, and uh, I didn't uh, realize this. I had just been recently listening to a sermon by Ravi Zacharias, and he explains this, and it's like perfect for what I'm talking about. Do you remember King Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon overtook Israel? You know, Gilligan's Island of the Old Testament. He took them over, destroyed, raped and pillaged all of Israel, destroyed the temple. Genius Nebuchadnezzar, though, what did he do? He went in and he said, bring to me all the highest intellects, these young people that are geniuses, intellectual wonders, that are the 
priests and the kings and the smart ones. Bring them in and bring them to my palace. And what is the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do? He said, what I want you to do with these kids is he said, I want you to give them the same food that I eat off the king's table. What do you think he was trying to do? Give them a new appetite. Things were rough in Israel. They didn't have much while they were trying to defend themselves against Babylon. Once they were overthrown, now these intellects come in. They get to sit where? King's table. They get to eat whose food? The king's food. All these delicacies, all this good stuff. Ooh, pass me the chocolate. Ooh, pass me the lobster tail dipped in butter seven times. Ooh, give me good wine, right? What did Daniel say? I will not eat the king's meat. I will not eat from the king's table or his portion. Why? Think of this. Why? Because I'm not going to change my appetite. My appetite is staying hungry for God. I will not forsake God. Listen, you start changing your appetite for food, you start changing your appetite for where you sit and eat that food, you start changing the appetite of what you're going to dress, you start changing the appetite of the name they call you, you start changing the appetite of the language you're going to speak in, you start changing the appetite of your prayer life for their prayer life, eventually their God for your God. Daniel nipped it in the bud. Right at the base thing, he recognized, I will not eat the king's food. So I will not get a new appetite. Lust is trying to create a new appetite for you. So you get hungry for those things. And brothers and sisters, we live in Babylon. An American Babylon. And we are so lustful as a people. We must recognize our food alone is so full of lust. Our portions and what we eat. Let alone our clothing. Do you have enough shoes yet? Anybody? Do you have enough suits and pants and ties? Do we have enough? It's lust, and there is a spirit of lust on us, and if we don't recognize it, if we don't nip it in the bud, there's so much sensuality in this nation. Lust over everything. We lust, we lust, to where the church can't pray anymore because we're lustful for the time to watch Gilligan's Island and Willy Wonka. And of course, Spongebob too. Do you see what's going on? We must wake up. We've been enticed and dragged away into Babylon to eat the food of the enemy. God help us. Break the spirit of lust by a pure heart that loves Jesus. No way to enticement. I don't need any more from this world. I don't need more money. I need to spend more time with my God. I don't need another car or another boat or another condo or another this. God bless you if you have it. But let me ask you, the more things you have, the more time it takes to take care of them. And is the kingdom first? No more lust. 
No more I need this, I have to have that. No more of the better thing. Paul said, I have found the secret to be content whether I have riches or whether I am poor, whether I have need or whether I have want, whether I have anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but the key is contentment. Break the power of lust in our lives. It's a message for us. And the only way you can break it is, again, the opposite of that is a pure heart for Jesus. A pure heart. He says, wherever your treasure is, there is where you will find your heart. Where's your treasure? Where's your treasure? What is your heart desiring more than anything else? A right love for Jesus Christ. You must be lovesick for Him. You must fall in love with Him. You must adore Him above all things. You must ask Him every time before a purchase, should I or shouldn't I, my love, my Lord, my Master? Should I take of the King's meat? Should I? And what happened with Daniel, the steward said, look it, we're going to get in trouble. If we only feed you vegetables and rice, and you get sick and weakly, the King's going to be mad at us. He said, give me ten days. Give me 10 days. Let me eat just vegetables and not the king's table. And after 10 days, guess what? Daniel and the three Hebrew boys that were with him looked better, stronger than any of the other kids from Israel. Because they didn't bow to the Lord. Because a heart passion for God will sustain you above all things. I close with this. Lust starts with the eyes. Lust of the eyes. Eve lusted after that apple, that fruit on that tree. Jesus said it right, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. Your eye is the light to the soul. So what are you gazing at? What are you left lusting after? What are you focusing on? What is your pursuit? What is your heart's desire above all things? And I'm praying. I'm pouring my heart out to you today. Above all things, may your eyes desire Christ beyond anything else. You see a beautiful woman, you see a beautiful guy, God, bless God, hallelujah, aren't they pretty? And that's it, move on. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that car you've always wanted drive by, just realize in a couple weeks it'll be rusted out. Desire Jesus. Desire God. Remember, we live in Babylon and we've got to get past these deadly sins. And the key is this, a heart for Christ. Let's bow our heads.